Lord, we've been singing about your holiness today. We've been singing about the fact that you are so different from us. You are perfect. And yet you've come down to this planet to display your love. You've come down to earth to reveal to us who you are and how we can have a right relationship with you. Lord, I pray that we will not miss your truth today as we seek to understand your majesty and your glory, your loving kindness and your truth, your holiness and your righteousness, all perfectly displayed in Jesus, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Last month, a Southwest airline flight, flight 4013, with about 120 passengers going from Midway Airport in Chicago to Branson, Missouri, landed at the wrong airport. It was a Boeing 737, so it's a rather sizable plane. And it touched down at a small airport in uh, Taney County, it was about seven miles from Branson. This small airport had no tower and had a runway half the size of Branson's. When the plane landed, apparently the pilot, pilot realized the problem. He slammed on the brakes as hard as he could. The passengers said they could s smell the rubber burning. And he was able to stop the plane 500 feet before the end of the runway. If they overshot the runway, they would go down an embankment, a ravine, onto Highway 65, and I'm sure many people would have been killed. But he stopped the plane. After the plane stopped, the captain said, Welcome to Branson. <laughs> and a few minutes later, he said, uh, Excuse me, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen. Apparently, we've landed at the wrong airport. Now, once you hear those words, you know you are in big trouble. You're alive, you're thankful for that, but this is not going to be easy. And it wasn't. They were stuck on the tarmac in that plane for two hours because they had to go to Branson to get the stairs to bring them over to this small airport to get the people out of the plane. They had no stairs that would reach that high. And then quickly, Southwest Airline uh, dealt with each passenger, and they actually wrote this statement. We have since reached out to every customer directly to apologize to refund their ticket price, and to provide them with a travel uh, voucher for future travel. All of this done as a gesture of goodwill for the inconvenience that you endured. That's, that's kind of airline speak for we're doing everything we can to avoid a lawsuit. <laughs> and the passengers were pretty good-natured about it. But one pilot, as they were investigating this situation, a 20-year veteran, Mark Weiss, who had flown for commercial airlines, said, although this is not common, it's not really unheard of. And then a study came out just a couple days ago on the Associated Press wire that said there have been 150 landings at the wrong airport since the early 1990s. Now, that's a long time. And with all the thousands of flights that take place, uh, that really is a small percentage. But still, 150 times they land at the wrong place. 
Here's a, a couple examples of that. A Continental Airline flight was going from Houston to Lake Charles, Louisiana, and it ended up landing at the Southland Executive Airport in Sulphur, Louisiana, eight miles away from their destination. They landed at an airport that was popular with crop dusters, and uh, it was a very small runway. But here's the kicker. This was the third time that a Continental flight had landed on this wrong airstrip. Or May 1997, another Continental Airline going from Corpus Christi to, uh, uh, from Houston to Corpus Christi, Texas, lands at an abandoned World War II airstrip. That must have been a shocker. Or in September 1995, a Northwest Airline flight from Detroit on its way to Frankfurt, Germany, missed its destination by a mere 200 miles and landed in Belgium. Wow. Now, thankfully, in all of these situations, no one was hurt, and that was good. Someone asked Mark Weiss, this 20-year veteran pilot, he said, was this a pilot's error? And he laughed, and he made this statement. He said, well, there are still a lot of questions unanswered, but I suspect this is a matter of procedures not being followed. You think? Procedures not being followed. Now, a little inconvenience, landing at the wrong airport, not the end of the world, right? But what if your destination was heaven? You were on your way to heaven. You thought that the flight you were taking was going to get there. The path you were following would end up in heaven. You have the procedural book. It's just a matter of not following procedures. And you end up at that other airport that is a long distance away. That's not just inconvenience. That's eternal punishment. What I'm saying is there's a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end, it's the way to the wrong airport, the way of death. And that's why God constantly, in the Word of God, reveals to us who He is and what He wants us to know and how we can know Him, how we can be properly related to Him, how we can enjoy the blessings that He desires for us to enjoy. And that's the backdrop of Exodus chapter 19 and chapter 20. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 19 and 20. In our study of the life of Moses, we've now come to the foot of Mount Sinai. And I think chapter 19 is so helpful for us before we rush into what we know as the Ten Commandments given in chapter 20. We read in verse 1 of 19, Exodus 19. It was the third month after the Israelites left Egypt. On that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. They had set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped in the desert in front of the mountain. Now this is the mountain of God. This is the mountain of the burning bush, Exodus 3. This is the mountain where God called Moses into the ministry and said, this is how you'll know that I've called you. This is how you'll know that I'm with you. You'll come back to this mountain and worship me. And so now they're back by divine appointment. That's why the Exodus route had to travel that southern route. 
if we have the right location for Mount Sinai. That's why they had to go through the desert. It was the will and command of God. They're not wandering in the desert now. They're following the Lord through the trials and difficulties and challenges of that desert life to the very place where they would meet with God. God was with them. But now there is going to be a special revelation of God to them. And they don't want to miss the mountain of God's appointment. Here's a picture that we looked at last week of Mount Sinai, if this is the exact one. This is uh, Jebel Musa. It is a mountain that is right near the uh, monastery called St. Catherine's. And if you would take a tour of the southern peninsula, the Sinai Peninsula, most likely they would take you to this place and say, there is Mount Sinai. Not sure if it is for sure, but it is perhaps the best guess. And all the details of the mountain and the land surrounding it fit perfectly into the biblical data. Here's a modern-day picture of that mountain. There's a large plain in which the people of Israel could camp. There's this majestic mountain rising up rather quickly, the deep fissures, the, the awesome uh, location it just seems to fit and certainly is a place that would cause you to reflect deeply on what happened at that mountain whether it was this location or another one but here they are at the Mount of God and basically this is what God wants to do they're going to be at the base of this mountain for 11 months before they start the years of wandering in the wilderness they're going to be at this place to get a clear understanding of who God is and what God requires of them. And here's the beginning of it. In other words, the Lord wants to say to his people, Behold your God. This is who I am. Let's get acquainted. And I like the way he starts out. The very first thing is not judgment. The very first thing is mercy. Behold the compassion and the loving kindness of God. Typified in that wonderful phrase of verse 4, I've carried you on eagle's wings. The scripture tells us in verse 3, Moses went up to God and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, By the way, let me just interject that there are going to be about eight different trips of Moses going up and coming down, going up and coming down. Sometimes we think of Moses going up staying there for 40 days, and then coming down. But there are at least seven, maybe eight trips. There are three trips in chapter 19 alone. So he's up and down, up and down, getting a word from God, coming back and reporting to the people. The first time up, God says, Moses, remember, I'm the one who carried you on eagle's wings. That's verse 4. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt, and brought you to myself. Now Mount Sinai is not the home of God. It's where God appears to his people. It's a sacred place when God is there. When God leaves, in one sense, it's just another mountain. Nothing magical about it. When God is there, there are some strictures. When God leaves, those same restrictions are lifted. I carried you on eagle's wings. What does that mean? Well, it's a wonderful metaphor, isn't it? Of God's protection of us. 
of his care for us and of the victory he longs for us to enjoy. First time that this metaphor is used on eagle's wings. I I think the picture is clearly that of a, a mother eagle pushing her young out of the nest, stirring the nest, forcing them to fly. Maybe they don't feel they're ready to, but forcing them to nonetheless. And if they fall, catching them on her large wings before they hit the ground. Later on, when Israel is coming out of captivity, the Lord says, I'm the one who's going to give you strength. In fact, those who trust in me will renew their strength, Isaiah 40. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's as though the the feathers, the wings, the pinions of the eagle help create a turbulence that cause the young to fly. It's as though it helps them stay airborne. It creates an updraft for them. And so once the eaglets begin to fly, the mother is right there to help them fly. And then it's the soaring above all the dangers of the predators on the earth below. The eagle is the one who is above it all. I will help you to soar on eagle's wings. So that when you get to the book of the Revelation, the eagle in those chapters refers to the victory, the majestic victory won for us in Jesus Christ. Oh, it all starts here, whether it's the care and protection, whether it's the victory above the fray, whether it's the soaring to the eventual home in heaven with the Lord What a wonderful picture of God's care for us. And the Lord says, this is how I want you to think of me. When you think of me, think of me as the one who loves you so much that I redeemed you out of Egypt. Eighteen chapters to do that. And I carried you every step of the way. And since you've left Egypt, you've had hardship in the desert with no water. When you found water, it was bitter. Had to fight the Amalekites. I gave you food from heaven called manna. I have met you every step of the way because like an eagle mother, I'm carrying you on my wings to protect and give you victory. Think about that. As you go through difficult times this week, God wants to carry you on eagle's wings. Now, the response makes it clear that this is a renewal of the covenant, the covenant that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant that God promised to renew in Exodus chapter 6 with an uplifted hand. Here's God's covenant to them. He says in verse 5, Now if you obey me fully, if you obey me with all of your heart, if you give it everything you've got, if you keep my commandment, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. He mentions three things that will be true of them if their obedience to the Lord is wholehearted and genuine. You'll be my treasured possession, the possession of kings, the treasures of kings. Out of the whole earth, even though I own everything, you will be a kingdom of priests. You'll have access into my presence, and you'll be my representatives, and you will be a holy people, a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, 
a holy people. That means I will set you apart for myself. There'll be no one I love quite like I love you. I will give to you blessings that no one else receives. You'll have access that no one else has. You are mine, and I love you. That's what God wants Israel to know about him. Behold your God, loving kindness. Isn't that a great way to start? And that's how God views us. You say, well, pastor, that's Old Testament. Don't you know? That's for Israel. That's not for us. Well, be careful about how you divide the Scripture. While there are some things that are truly for the nation of Israel that are unique to that theocracy, there are many biblical principles that are applied to us as well. For instance, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter, in encouraging the people of God to endure suffering, starts out by saying, I want you to have a good view of who you are and of who God is. And that's why he says that you are a unique people to God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, he says, I want you to understand that you are living stones. You are a spiritual house. You are a holy priesthood. An, uh, uh, a holy priesthood that offers acceptable sacrifices. That you're chosen and precious. Jesus himself is the one who is chosen and precious, but we are precious, verse 7, uh, in him. To us who believe, he is precious. And to those who believe, the Lord looks at us and calls us precious. Calls us his own possession, verse 9. You're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people belonging to God. Where did Peter get that language? Exodus 19. And says this is how God views the church and this is how the church needs to view themselves in relationship to a holy God who loves them more than they could ever know. So... Going back to Exodus 19, our response is to be obedience, which is simply love. John 14 says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus said, if you want to show that you love me, do what I tell you to do. That's the proof of the pudding. Love me. And so now in Exodus, when he says, fully obey my commandments, he's saying, I've loved you like an eagle carrying its young, and I want you to love me by doing what I tell you to do. These commands are not intended to harm you. They are intended to bless you. In fact, you can't have blessing any other way. I love that great hymn that says, My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, is now. Love the way that ends. He ends every stanza, the author, William Featherston, ends every stanza the same way. I love thee because you first loved me, and you purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love you for wearing the thorns on your brow. If I've ever loved you, Jesus, it's now. 
I once loved you in receiving you as my Savior. I remember times where I was obedient to the Word, but all that in the past, that's eclipsed by my love for you today. If I ever loved you, today's the day. Today, Jesus, I love you. I wonder if you can say that. The obedience of your life says it, or the disobedience of your life declares it. So he wants to renew the covenant. He wants them to respond in faith and devotion. He wants them to follow his teaching, his truth, so they can experience this protection and experience this victory. That's the love of God for you. He is compassionate. So Moses comes down from the mountain and he tells the people everything that God told him to say. Verse 8, the people all respond by saying, we'll do everything the Lord has said. By the way, they're going to repeat this several times. It's repeated in chapter 20. And I really appreciate their, uh, their commitment. However, it's a bit naive. We'll do everything you say. It reminds me of James and John, when they wanted to have the best positions in the coming kingdom, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, put one of us on the right hand, one of us on the left. And Jesus said, do you know what you guys are asking? Can you endure this? And they said, yep, we can, not a problem. Sure. Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? Bring it on. Not a problem. <laughs> At the Last Supper, Jesus said, they're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Peter said, I won't. Jesus said, before the night's over, you'll disown me three times. He said, listen, if I have to die with you, I would never disown you. And the scripture says in Matthew 26, all the others said the same. We'll do everything he tells us to do. It's a bit naive, isn't it? Hey, aren't you the one who said, did you see what that Christian did? I would never do that. Where'd you come up with that? Who are you? Take heed. You who think you stand, lest you... I would never commit that sin. Oh, really? All the seeds of every sin are in your wicked heart and in mine. <laughs> now, we're prone to some sins more than others. But don't get so self-righteous. We make these great statements, I will walk with you wherever you want me to go. We need a little more humility, don't we? A little more brokenness. A little more understanding of how wicked our heart is and how frail we are. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. And we make these statements like we're somebody. And that's the way Israel did it. So Moses hears that, and he actually goes back and tells the Lord. And then... The Lord reveals something else. Here's the second thing I want to emphasize. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come down. The condescension of God. This is where God comes down to be with us. This is where God enters into our world. This is where God stoops from heaven and comes to planet Earth, albeit in a very unique and impressive way. But God comes to us. Behold your God. He takes the initiative. We love him because he first loved us. We can get to know him because he came, he invaded our world and proclaimed that he was light. 
This is quite an amazing thing. The Lord says, Moses, I'm going to come down in a dense cloud, verse 9, and I'm going to speak from that cloud so the people can hear me. I want the people to know this is me talking, and I want people to know that you're my representative, and I want them to follow you. So that's why this demonstration. And he tells the people, here's your response, consecrate yourself for two days, verse 10. Today and tomorrow, wash your clothes. There's special bathing that you need to be involved with. There is a limitation on physical relationships that's mentioned later on in the text. There are limits, verse 12, put around the mountain, probably a barricade. No one can come and touch this mountain because when I come down, that mountain is going to take on special significance and to touch it means death. And so, verse 16, on the morning of the third day, after the people had consecrated themselves, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, and everyone in the camp trembled. Hebrews 12 says Moses trembled. Deuteronomy 5 says the mountain was ablaze with fire, thunder, lightning, dark cloud, rain, sound of voice, trumpet, and everything is shaking. The people, Moses, verse 18, and the mountain trembled violently. I cannot imagine this experience. But it made quite an impression on the people of God. God comes down to give us an understanding of who He is. We're told in Deuteronomy that there was a revelation here of God's glory, of His majesty, and of His holiness. Read Psalm 29. We are to ascribe to the Lord His holiness. We are to describe to the Lord glory. Worship Him in the beauty of His holiness. And the rest of the psalm, Psalm 29, speaks about the voice of the Lord thundering. And here it is. It shows his sovereignty, his omnipotence, but it also shows his desire to connect and communicate with us. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses says, has anything like this ever happened before? Has there ever been a people who saw God come down and lived, who heard him speak and didn't die? This is amazing. But I've got something better. Talk about God coming down. How about the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem? How about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us? And we've beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in that same text, John says, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth. That's personified in the person of Jesus Christ. You really want to see grace? Look to Jesus, not Moses. Moses gave us truth about God. Moses revealed who God is. 
But when Jesus came, Hebrews 1, he's the exact representation of the Father's likeness, and he has declared the Father to us. Talk about awesome. <laughs> oh, the fanfare wasn't quite the same. Smoke on the mountain? No. How about angels in the heavens? That would have been pretty cool, although apparently only a few people saw it. God loves to come down to be with us. Not only that, he doesn't stop there. Think of this. When you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your body becomes the temple of God, and he invades you. That is awesome. Well, the scriptures tell us that there was great fear. And I think it's at this time when God actually spoke the Ten Commandments. That's just my guess. It's at one of these times. I think they were probably spoken audibly and the per people heard them. But look at, finally, this revelation of God, His character in the Ten Commandments. Well, before we do that, there is, there's a picture I want you to see. This is just an artist's conception of what the mountain might have looked like with smoke and fire and the people of God in front of it. I, I jumped over it too quickly. Maybe they can find it. There it is. Two million people. I wonder if anyone tried to touch the mountain. I mean, when the Lord said, don't go out and get the man on the seventh day, they did. When the Lord said, don't do something, they did. When he said, don't keep it for two days, they did. When he said, don't touch the mountain, I wonder if there's a few who said, I'm just going to try it awesome sight and this is where God gives us his ten words here's the final revelation of God that we want to talk about this morning this revelation of his character in the ten words of Exodus 20 and God spoke verse 1 says all of these words Exodus 34 28 says the ten commandments are the ten words of God it's not that there won't be more detail given, but this is the foundation, the ten words. Even in mathematics, it seems like counting by ten. Whether there was any other example before now gains much impetus from this ten commands. It's the number that gives symmetry and completeness to the law of a holy God. By the way, the preamble is so important. It says in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of slavery. Understand, I am the liberator before I am the lawgiver. Now they had some laws and they were teaching the truth of God before, but understand liberation goes along with law. Freedom with restrictions. This law cannot give life, but this law is the path of life. It speaks of the blessings that can be enjoyed in life when you live according to this law. It cannot save you, but it is a moral reflection, is a reflection of the moral character, the holiness, the righteousness, the justice, the uniqueness of God himself. By the way, since he redeemed us, the first 18 chapters of Exodus, 
He has a right to command us. And these commandments are not burdensome. They're good. I think sometimes we project upon God, and especially the Ten Commandments, the idea that we got from our parents, that our parents exist merely to remove fun from living. You know, so if you're going out to a party, what happens? Be home at a certain time, don't do this, don't do that, and if you do, you're getting, you know, you're in big trouble. And you say, well, you did that when you were young, well, don't, you know, do as I do, do as I say. And parents just seem to be there to put restrictions, and, and kids really think that we must know something, and we don't want them to enjoy life too much. <laughs> so we give them all these rules. Did you know that although cast in the negative, these Ten Commands give the foundation for a blessed life? And they fall into two categories. When you think about the Ten Commandments and two stones, for instance, with Hebrew words written on them, think of these two divisions. First of all, it speaks of our relationship to God, and secondly, our relationship to people. I'm not going to go into a detailed uh, discussion or exposition of the Ten Commandments. We've done that before. There's a sermon series where each sermon takes one of the Ten Commandments and digs into what it means and applies it to our life. But let me just give you a, a quick summary of it. The first tablet, the first stone of the Ten Commandments, our relationship to God. No other gods, verse 3. That's because there aren't any other gods. So don't try to make one. Number two, don't make the form of God because God has no form. How did he appear to them? In a formless cloud. So don't make a statue, don't make an idol, and don't bow down to worship it, which, is, uh, which is, amazes me that in so many cathedrals they're filled with statues that people worship, either of a, a picture of what God might look like or of some saint that needs to be worshipped. How sad. God says, don't do that. He says, don't take my name in vain, for I am a jealous God. Don't misuse my name. Isn't it amazing that godless people become religious when they get angry? Have you ever noticed that? They speak about God and about Jesus Christ. They mention his name several times and with passion. Talk about hell. Yeah, that's misusing the name of God, but so is our declaration. I'm a follower of Jesus, and then we live in open sin. We are misusing the name of Jesus. The Sabbath day, that's the fourth commandment. I think this is the one that may not be part of the moral law. It's the sign of the Old Testament covenant. There were many restrictions regarding the Sabbath day, many regulations that are purely ceremonial. And when you get into the New Testament, we're not counting Sabbath days. We're not under the Sabbath laws. We have the Lord's Day. But that goes all the way back to the creatorial purpose that in a given week, dedicate one day to me. Stop your normal activity and focus on me. So that principle is there. Now, the second half of the commands, honor your parents, it says. Don't take someone's life. Don't even hate them. Don't commit sexual immorality. Don't take something that doesn't belong to you. Don't speak that which is not true. 
And don't covet what belongs to other people. This is the foundation for liberty, this law of God. Did you know, I was talking to Dave Coleman for the second service, and, and, and I was convinced that the Ten Commandments were etched in marble on the Supreme Court building, and David said, no, they're not. He said they are, in, they are carved on the wooden front doors of the Supreme Court building, and today they always keep those doors open because if they were closed, you'd have to read the Ten Commandments, but by opening them, you don't see the Ten Commandments. America is ashamed of the Ten Commandments. We took God out of our schools and the Ten Commandments as well because we just don't like this law. We don't like God telling us what we can and can't do. We don't like the thought that there is a God with whom we have to do. But the people who love him know that this is the path of life and we embrace it. Herein is God's uniqueness. I alone am God and there is none other. By the way, the law is very Trinitarian. Did you notice? Given by the Father, summarized by Jesus in Matthew 22. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. And the Holy Spirit is the one, according to Romans 8, verse 4, who gives us the ability to keep these requirements in our heart and even the energy to obey them in our life. We can't keep them to gain salvation, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. That's clear. But here's where it's so good. Because again, I love studying the life of Moses because at the end of every message, we can say Moses was great, but Jesus is better. When you go to Hebrews 12, it says we've not come to a mountain with thundering and shaking and lightning and fire, to an old covenant of animal sacrifice, we have come to a better covenant sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've come to a, a heavenly city, one for us by the righteousness of the one who hung on a cross. So God says, I want to reveal who I am to you. And in the Old Testament, it was revealed clearly on Mount Sinai. But again, remember this. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He is the epitome of all that God is because he is God. He is the exact representation of the Father. And if there was a penalty for rejecting the voice that spoke from the cloud, and there was, how much more? Will we escape? Will we escape if we neglect this great salvation? Let's pray. Lord, it would be an inconvenient thing to take an airplane flight and land at the wrong airport. It would be an eternal tragedy for us to think we are right going in the right direction and end up lost forever. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He reveals your loving kindness. He displays your holiness. He proclaims your righteousness.
And we come to Him having sins forgiven and full acceptance. We come to Him as living stones built on the foundation stone. We come to Him and we are a treasured possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Thank you for the gospel that gives to us all that we could not achieve for ourselves. Thank you for the gospel that takes away the thunderings of Sinai and makes us accepted in the beloved. And Lord, I pray if there is someone here today who has never trusted you, may today be the day when they believe on Jesus and find life that never ends. In your name, amen.